Welcome to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. If you're looking for news, tips, and stories about fishing the Great Lakes, you've come to the right place. And now your host, Chris Larson. Good evening and welcome to Fishhawk Live and the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast. Tonight we're joined by Captain Ross Robertson from Big Water Fishing. Ross, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We've done a few of these things. I think this one might be a little different, though, maybe. Yeah, a little bit different, but, uh, you know, we've been doing this live thing here uh, once a week now for about eight or nine weeks, and it's it's been really fun having lots of different characters, and uh, great to have you on, speaking of characters. So, so we appreciate you taking the night off. I know uh, that you guys have been super busy down on Lake Erie, on Lake Erie doing a bunch of charters, and you were out on the water today. How would your day go today? We had a good day. You know, we started off when it was literally flat, flat calm. And, you know, sometimes that's that's a nice thing on the back and everything and in the, the, the pocket while you're driving out there, but it's not always the best for fishing. And uh, about 10 minutes in, we were almost getting to our spot there and the east wind kicked up. So that's normally not a good thing either. It was just a weird day. And then it literally got so fogged in, you probably couldn't see 100 feet in front of you. And um, so it was kind of a weird day, but the good news is the fish were biting. So that's always the, a plus, but it was definitely a weird start. I don't think I've ever seen fog like that in June. Yeah, but people can deal with a lot of things that the fish are biting and uh, the net's wet. That is a fact. I mean, it's it's amazing how just like one fish in, in fishing, like I get guys and they're just super quiet or somebody loses one fish or something and, and the boat is just like deadly silent or you get a couple guys that just don't even talk, which is sometimes kind of weird because I'm such a motor mouth, as you know. And then you get one fish in the boat and just everybody's a chatty Cathy and all of a sudden they're not cold anymore. Or they're not hot anymore. And so it doesn't take much. Yeah, fish is a good cure. Ross, before we get started tonight, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your charter, Big Water Fishing? Big Water Fishing, we've been in business for 20 plus years and we do things a little different than some guys. We were the first a small boat charter on the Great Lakes there. and we, Or not the Great Lakes, but just Lake Erie anyhow. Maybe the Great Lakes, but I doubt it. Um, and it was ironic because Al Linder kind of got me into the game for doing the educational trips. He said, Bob, you've got to do these educational things, teach these people. So a lot of my clients, you know, they've got their own boat and we, we help them everything from electronics to rigging to maybe trying to catch a trophy to just taking a, you know, father and son out like we're going to do here shortly. So um, we run out of a Ranger 622, which is a 23 foot boat, and we move with the fish. So we're not kind of stuck at one place and it's, it's a hands on deal. Um, and then we run a media company. You know, we basically do everything with companies we work with, like Fish Hawk and Sims and Fish USA, and we produce content that you may have seen on our YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and then also some of the commercials and stuff like that that you see. Yeah, I see you all over the place doing Fish USA videos. I've been seeing you on the Lakewood page quite a bit lately as well. So you're kind of a guy that's, that's not only helping people that are hiring you to charter, but you're helping people kind of all over the internet with lots of different advice and information that you're putting out there. I know you've done a lot of stuff with, uh, you've written a lot of magazine articles and those things as well. Yep. And, you know, the magazine stuff, unfortunately, is kind of going away a little bit, but I'm still like I do a monthly column for InFisherman, um, also for Meat Eater and still write for like Field and Stream and Outdoor Life just on the digital format now that they don't have uh, the print stuff. So a little bit different way of doing it, but um, in some cases, probably even a little more updated. So, Ross, you talked about guiding out of that small boat. What made you do that? And you, you touched on a little bit on some of the advantages of that, but uh, what are kind of the main advantages out of guiding out of a smaller boat? 
Well, I think that, you know, I kind of learned it from some of the Bass guys, ironically. I don't know if the Steve, Steve Clapper is a, a name that maybe you do or don't know, but he's probably the winningest smallmouth angler of all time. And, you know, he was fishing a bass boat for these things when nobody was doing it on the Great Lakes. And I ran into him on, on places on the lake, you know, 20 years ago, or even maybe even more than that. And me and him were kind of fishing a lot of the same stuff, even though we were fishing for different species. And the one thing we had in common is we were both winning a lot and we were catching fish that our guys weren't just on. And I learned real quick that, you know, boat control from traveling with guys on the PWT like Gary Roach, like you can just do things in a, you know, whatever you want to call it, trailerable boat with an electric motor. Uh, that you can't do in those big boats that those guys traditionally have out here, like a 27 or a 30-foot sport craft that you see on Lake Erie or Lake of the Woods. They're pretty much, they're they're stuck, you know. So a day like well, a couple days ago was flat, flat-ass calm. Um, you know, those guys are, they're, they're, they're uphill uh, with no paddle backwards, snowing, you know, the, all the bad stuff. So with I, what I can do, I can move the boat too. We may, we may launch, you know, in Cleveland one day, and then I may hide out behind the Bass Islands when we get a big east wind or something the next day or when water clarity changes. So you can provide a lot more results and a lot less excuses. And folks, if you're watching tonight, once again, uh, put those questions for Captain Ross Robertson in the comments. He's been doing this for a long time. He's on the water just about every day and really uh, all year long out on Lake Erie. So if you got questions on trolling for walleyes or just about the water, put them in the comments. And then once again, as we do every week, we will pick the question of the night to win that fish hawk swag bag. Ross, uh, another thing I wanted to talk to you talk to you about is Lake Erie itself. And I mean, was it 40, 50 years ago? A lot of people talked about Lake Erie as essentially a dead lake. There wasn't really much there that you wanted to go after. And now it's really one of North America's success stories. Uh, you know, the fishing really has never been better. Tell us a little bit about that transformation and kind of what went into that. You know, I might, I might, I'm, I'm older than uh, some of the guys now, but I'm still a younger than many. And I don't remember the, uh, the whole deal, right? I was too young for a lot of it, but <clears throat> the Cuyahoga River catching on fire in the 60s, if I'm not mistaken, you know, I still get people, not as much, but I, I bet you maybe a couple times a year they go, are you sure we can eat these fish like Lake Erie? You know, it's just, it's all messed up. And I think the, the there's a lot of fake news out there, especially with this algae bloom thing. You know, um, people, I think just, they want to get a story sometimes. I know all the time I'm get asked to be interviewed by different news organizations about how crazy the algae bloom is right now. And I'm like, we don't even have one. And, you know, they move on until they get somebody else that, that wants to hear about that. But realistically, our lake, I think, is in good a shape as we've ever had. I mean, we've like 150 million estimated fish, catchable fish. Right now we're catching a ton of fish between like 10 and 12 inches, 13 inches, which, you know, is kind of annoying, but it's a great problem for the future. Um, and the lake is clean, man. Um, you know, yeah, we get some storms that stir things up, but day in and day out, I mean, it's not uncommon some places out in that lake to have anywhere from five to 15 foot of visibility. And our forge base seems to be pretty good, even though I think some of the guys wish we had some more shiners. Um, but things are good. I mean, in, in my lifetime, certainly we've got more fish and seemingly better conditions. Uh, tell us a little bit about why that walleye fishing is so good. I mean, what is it? Uh, what is it about Lake Erie that has made uh, it become kind of this this walleye capital? I guess we'll call it the walleye capital of the world. I know there's a lot of people in Minnesota who might want to smack me around for saying something like that about a lake not in Minnesota. But uh, what what is it about Lake Erie that's made it such a great lake for walleyes? Yeah, I hear a lot of places that claim to be the walleye capital, and you know, I'm not trying to dig on any of those guys, but I got a little hometown pride here too. And 
I mean, even like Mille Lacs in the day, you know, and I know I'm really going to anger some guys with this one. I think the estimated population, it was like between three and 500,000. And when you start throwing around, you got 150 million fish out there. Um, that's a big number. You know, that's a big number. You want three dollars $500,000 or you want 150 million, right? And it's just, the, the, I think, again, I'm not a biologist, but I think we're kind of just geographically located in the right spot. I've heard something like 80% of the catchable game fish of the entire Great Lakes are in Lake Erie. And I think, you know, we're unfortunately kind of right on the edge of the ice belt, but that also helps us with just having a really fertile lake. You know, it's a lot shallower. Um, our water turns over a lot faster. So when we do have problems, it kind of cycles through and we have a lot of forage because being that southern uh, most, if you will, on the Great Lakes, it's, it really helps with things like the uh, the gizzard shed, where we're on the northern range of those. And a lot of those big walleyes really like eating those uh, those gizzard shed. And so we've got a lot of different forage bases. And unlike other bodies of water that kind of rely on one or maybe two main forages, they tend to get in, in you know into trouble because those things go up and down. They get viruses or they just die off or whatever happens. They eat them out of house and home. You know, we've seen that on Lake Huron. And Knock on wood, we've just been fortunate that we don't have those issues or haven't had major issues like that here. And we've kind of survived a lot of the stuff that you're hearing people talk about, like, uh, you know, the algae blooms and zebra mussels and all that stuff. And we're just healthy. I mean, again, no biologist, but we've got a lot of fish and things are good. You're on the west end of the lake, and that's kind of known as sort of the nursery of Lake Erie. That's where, where all, all the new ones come from. Uh can you tell us a little bit about the differences between that east end and the west end where you're located? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm a shameless plug I'm going to do here, but we just had Travis Hartman, the fisheries uh, Lake Erie program director, I think is his title, on my podcast. And we put a bunch of videos on my YouTube that were kind of broken down by specific questions. And one that just blew my mind, because if, if you're familiar with Lake Erie at all, you can kind of picture this. The west end, let's say from like Sandusky-ish to the west is what we're going to call the western basin. And that's like you said, that's the nursery. That's where those fish all come to spawn during ice season. That's where a majority of them, you know, migrate down to. And that is where, uh, again, I'm making up a number here, but it's probably 80, 90%. I can't remember the exact number of like licensed guides and sport fishing and tourism are at. Um, but yet when Travis was on there uh, with the thing, he said that now with all the tracking studies they have, it's much more accurate than when I was a kid keeping track of these fish something like 90 some percent of the fish actually travel out of that western basin basically at, you know maybe a few weeks ago let's talk about may-ish um so i was that that number blew my mind so you have all of these guys fishing for between five and less than 10 percent of the actual fish uh it, it's kind of crazy i mean it's it's a big pond but it's just crazy to me how many of them actually leave and uh you know don't come back till the fall yeah, how do you how do you handle that as a guy? That was something I wanted to talk to you about tonight. Was kind of the seasonalities of your neck of the woods, and I know everybody kind of lives for that spring walleye fishing, but things move out of there. How does that change uh, your job as as those fish migrate out of your area? Uh, I'm not going to give you all the secrets, but you know, I, I kind of like to fish fish that are more um, when I can that are. are I mean, it's a kind of a Captain Obvious statement, but I like to fish fish that I know are going to be more predictable. And open water fish are not predictable, you know, and they're a little more grumpy. So I try to avoid that when I can, um, you know, especially when we get into some of those transition times where you don't have to fish that way. And when you start fishing on somewhere like, you know, the central or eastern basin and there's nothing out there and you're, you can't see shore, 
um, you know, it can be difficult because those fish, you may come out, you may just have the best day of your life. You come out the very next day and those fish have moved five, six, seven, eight miles or more. So it's much more difficult to stay on those fish. Um, they don't really have a rhyme or reason to what they're doing. So, you know, back West, we have more things to kind of hold on almost like a bass fishing situation, even though I don't like using the green carp, uh, you know, relationship there, but it really is in much in the same way. And then you ask like, you know, how does a guide handle it being real? A lot of it too is, you know, there's more to it when you're guiding. You got people that are coming in, they want to see the tourist stuff. Maybe the kids are going to Cedar Point. So there definitely is some places throughout the season that I tell guys, hey, we really should go here, even though it's a pain in the butt. It's taking a lot more time and money out of my pocket, you know, to, to go do. And they're like, yeah, because that area is not as set up with tourism, let's say food and lodging and something maybe for the wife to do or the kids to do either after fishing or maybe they're not even fishing with us. So there's so many elements that come into it. And the other thing that's really nice about down where I'm at here is we've got a lot of islands. You know, we've got basically almost about 14, 15 miles kind of broken up that provide a big wind block. Like tomorrow we're going to have a big, you know, east wind. Uh, it's howling out there right now. And so you always have some place you can fish. Maybe it's not the most ideal thing. And so when you're talking about from a guide standpoint, um, it's not always, hey, can I catch 100 fish today? Sometimes it's kind of like that slow and steady, you know, tortoise uh, versus the hare thing. All right, we're starting to get a few questions come in. Uh, we'll start with uh, John Acerno, and he wants to know if you're dealing, he's from YouTube, he wants to know if you're dealing with a lot of short fish these days. You know, I was. Um, there was maybe three, four days ago for about three or four days that I definitely had some short fish. And I would say anywhere, you know, the thing that I get is short fish is, to me, it's two different things. You know, you get those fish that are like eight to maybe 12 inches. Um because those are, those are really, really difficult. We've got a lot of fish now right at 14 inches. So this fall, you know, that's probably gonna be a legal size fish. Um, actually just talking to the fisheries guys about that. And they said, you know, maybe even like 13s will be, you know, catchable or, or keepable, I should say this fall. Uh, but those short fish that are like, let's say eight to 12 inches, those are tough because you don't always know that they're on. Um, they steal stuff, you, you know, it's, it's difficult to release them even if you're casting or doing something. So those can be a huge pain in the butt, but there's definitely ways to, you know, do things differently. Um, you know, you, you just have to kind of work through things. There's a lot of things like small spoons. Those are, uh, you know, just a go-to for small fish. And so that's not something that I'm doing right now. All right. Here's another question. This is from YouTube again, and I'm going to hopefully be able to pronounce this city correctly. It's from Jim Weiss. It says he's Okay. Thank you for saving me there. He says the perch are gone. What do you think happened? We ate them all. I don't know. Yeah, they, the, they've lowered the perch limit, I believe. I think it's 10 fish over there. Um, you know, a lot of those guys, we've got a big commercial fish uh, operation down here where they do the processing. And I know those guys were, have really, really been struggling. So I'm not going to start throwing daggers. I mean, you could say some mismanagement. You could say this and that. I don't know. But perch also don't live as long. You know, you have some bad hatches. But it does seem in my lifetime that, you know, the perch is always just a roller coaster. It's up and down. It's up and down, up and down. But um, I'm no biologist, so I'm going to stick to what I do know. But I do know that those perch populations are, are up and down a lot. And it causes definitely a big, uh, big stir for sure. Even our, in our neck of the woods, they're pretty cyclical. You can go out there one year and pound them and maybe three or four more years before you find them like that again. All right, here's a Facebook question. This one from Ryan Sharp, and he'd like to know what's your most productive speed at the ball for walleye with spoons and harnesses? Most productive speed at the ball? Well, I don't use downriggers if that's what we're meaning by ball, but 
Um, you know, speed is a relative thing. That's why when you're using a fish hawk, like today was a prime example, we went into the waves to start the day. And I know even my guy was like, I've watched enough of your stuff to know that we don't go into the, we don't go into the, the waves here, but the current, you know, was the opposite of basically the wind. And that was kind of switching around. So that's going to change a lot. And if you don't use a fish hawk, shameless plug, uh, you're in trouble because even two or three tenths is going to change, you know, so much as where your lures are wiggling or, you know, the weights are going to be up or down. Um, but it, it's not a good answer. But, you know, in summertime, we may be upwards of two and a half miles an hour. And if you're a crank and spoon guy, maybe you're almost pushing three miles an hour on your speed over ground. Um, but I generally fish a lot, lot, lot slower than everybody. I would say most of the time I'm 0.8 to... 1.4. And are you, are you generally fishing with harnesses? Uh, I used to, you know, but cranks have been so deadly. And again, kind of trying to cover more water and stay out of those little uh, smaller fish. You know, at times that's definitely a better thing. And I know everybody wants like a, you know, two plus two answer on this, but these are things, you know, like in my boat, when I open up compartments and guys are like, so what, what are we doing? And I'm like, I would not be having this much equipment in the boat if I didn't think that I might have to call an audible. And, you know, that's the difference between a guy that's a, a good guide is I'm comfortable with all that stuff. And I really do make a lot of audibles. Let's talk about that for a second. I mean, obviously, you, know, you have a YouTube channel. You've got a ton of subscribers. People are watching what you're doing. You're, you're putting out a lot of content, talking about what you're doing. And you just said a few minutes ago, one of your clients said, hey, I know this isn't really what you say we should be doing, but we're doing it. What's that like for you to have these clients come in and they kind of, already have a little bit of an idea. They've already read a few pages of your book, if you will, already. Uh, what's that like for you when, when you've got people out there that, that at least feel like they, they know a little bit about you before you get out there? Right. You know, and, and I'm not sure what's better. If you got the guy that's got a little bit of knowledge there, because then he's calling you on your BS or something, but or you get somebody who shows up that doesn't know anything that's going on. And, and from day to day, I get both of those for sure. But I definitely, I honestly like the guys that are, you know, I don't want to say educated, but know what's going on, pay attention. I think the biggest thing is to, you know, I know you didn't ask this, but as, as a guide, the best thing you can hope for out of a client is somebody that's just paying attention and working with you. You know, a guy's sitting up there, you know, on his cell phone playing all day and you're missing fish or you need help with something or clearing some of my lines because he's texting all day. That wears a guy like me out. But having a guy that is paying attention to stuff and, and especially I, I take it as the ultimate compliment, you know, when somebody says, hey, I read this in your book or I watched that video. And then it's great because I'll explain to him what my thought process is. And I tell him I'm not always right, but here's why I'm going to do this. And um, so that, that's a good thing. All right, cool, Ross. Uh, tell us about that. You kind of got into that with, with those lines in the boat. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your your kind of trolling program. How many rods are you typically running? Again, we've got a 22-footer a uh, open bow boat. How many lines do you typically run when you're out trolling for walleyes? Well, we used to only be able to run two lines per person. And so, you know, a lot of my trips are, they're pretty much all one to three people. So, you know, in the past, I was able to run four, you know, maybe six lines, something like that. And now we can run really more than I got room for. And I think that sometimes you, uh, I, what was it grandma used to say, everybody's grandma said, the hurrier I go, the behinder I get. So running something like night crawlers, if, if you're doing that, I generally don't run much more than six. In the last little bit to kind of narrow things down and figure things out quickly, I'll start with maybe eight and go down to go down to six. Uh, because once you get things kind of figured out, uh, sometimes uh, less is more for sure. Uh, as we get into the summer and I start fishing deeper water, you know, which is not always the case, but generally speaking, if we're using something like dipsy divers, um, or a combination of techniques where I may be using planer boards and divers or some down stuff. 
um, maybe a few more rods because you can kind of comfortably do that without, you know, screwing up the spread. So there's not a good answer to that either, but generally less than most guys. Um, Cause the other thing too is, I mean, it's kind of way off topic and probably not what, you, what you're asking for, but you know, part of being a good guide too is, is to not get your fish in 10 minutes. You don't want to catch them too fast. I don't want to catch them too slow because some of these fish that we're catching in that deep water or when you're using things like night carla harnesses, they're always not releasable. Um, so I don't want to get somebody off the lake too much or too fast. And, you know, I don't want to have fish that are not able to be released. So. All right. That's, that's kind of a nice little secret of the pro there. Don't want to catch them too fast. It sounds like a tough problem to have. It, or too slow. <laughs> I'm telling you. It, 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 and, and that, so you got to put both of those things together because now all of a sudden, now you become a nut job. Like you're like, oh, too fast, too slow. And it, it was kind of like that today. They start coming two at a time and I'm like, ugh. But, you know, but you, it's a lot better than not catching anything, right? So. And once again, folks, if you got questions for Captain Ross Robertson, put them in the comments there. And again, at the end of the end of the night here, we will pick our, our question of the evening. You talk about those fish moving deeper as uh, the temperatures go up. Tell us a little bit about how that whole fishery in your neck of the woods, how that kind of moves through the season. Let's talk about the seasonalities of uh, walleye fishing in that Port Clinton area. We have, you know, it's kind of like spawning. People always say, well, when do your fish spawn here? It's Lake Erie is a different animal. It's kind of like a mom and pa shop or, you know, General Motors. We, we've got a much bigger operation here. So even things like spawning in the springtime is, you know, it's in waves. It's in multiple phases. And it's the same thing with open water. I mean, you can have fish in the deep basin. We've got fish right now that are basically leaving or left the western end and they're headed down probably around you know east of cleveland to erie pennsylvania in that range they tend to hang out in there in some of that deep cool water and then they cycle and come back but yet we've got fish that stay in the Maumee river which is about knee deep in pure mud and boil on hot water for whatever reason you know we get fish in the summertime too that go shallow we actually have some weed beds here not a lot of guy knows no you know know about wink wink and that's a really good place too. You got more oxygen in there. You know, you've got rocks, you've got, uh, you know, wind blowing up on that, it creates it. So it was really no different than some of the small Minnesota lakes. I know you're familiar with Chris. And there's just a lot of different techniques and, and there's a lot of different locations that happen here. And you tend to see the same stuff with big boat guys because they're going to drift the open water. But there's a lot more that you can do. And I think that's one thing that I see with, you know, some of the grizzled, grizzled old guides and then also people that come here from other places like Minnesota, Wisconsin or Dakotas, where they, they kind of hit on some of that stuff that a lot of the locals don't even know uh, because it's the same thing that these guys are doing in other states and it works here, too. All right. What's it uh, what's it like as things go kind of from summer into fall? What is that September, you know, October area? What's that like fishing in your neck of the woods? September can be tough. Um, maybe not the fishing end as much, but just getting there because you got to think about like this. We've got a lake that's maybe pushing 80 degrees and we know in roughly 30 to 45 days, it's going to be 50 something. And that only happens one way. And it's just like we got going on right now, big Northeast winds, East winds, you know, to cool that lake down. And, you know, that's a bad deal. So there's a lot of days you're sitting on shore. Um, most of the most of the lake, I, I, mean, I know you could argue this, but we don't really have a thermocline. We have a temperature break. Now, certain places over east, they actually do at times have a, a defined thermocline by definition. So that can kind of mess things up, too, when you start getting that 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 water shifting, you know, the water flopping, as you hear people say. So September would probably be my what I would say the toughest time to fish here because just getting out and then also that it's not the prime situation. Um, but then it flips very quickly, and October, November is some of the best fishing of the year for sure. 
And uh, a lot of people don't think of Lake Erie as a ice fishing destination, but uh, you're a 365 day a year guide. Tell us a little bit about that ice fishing you have in your neck of the woods for these walleyes. It's my favorite thing to do. It absolutely is my favorite thing to do. And yeah, we don't get a season that's, you know, four or five months long like you do, Chris. But the, the thing is, is I, I'm going to dig you a little bit here, right? You know, you Minnesota guys are either throwing plywood down or wearing hip waders to catch your fish. It's like the first and last bite is so good in that center thing when you're in your sleeper house and, you know, driving trucks out there. Can we be honest? It's not always the best fishing, right? And our season, while not super, super long, it's it's generally pretty good fishing. Um, and that's that's really a nice thing about here. But I work off of the Bass Islands and I take my stuff over there uh, before the you know, things freeze up and the boats get put away. So we get, we can fish out there where it's locked in, which is a huge, huge deal. And fortunately I have some good friends there that, that make that possible. So it's my favorite thing to do bar none. All right. We're starting to get a couple more questions here. This one's from YouTube and we talked about it a little bit earlier, but this one's from John over on you or over on YouTube as well. So he says, have you been catching more fish on meat still on spoons or cranks? John wants that swag bag. I can see it. <laughs> I don't know. Am I eligible for this? I mean, you know. You've already got swag. the hat. Yeah, I do. I like This is actually, I'll tell you, that's, I like this hat. But, um, yeah, I haven't been using spoons yet. That's just not my deal um, until I have to because um, I just don't like fishing fast. You know, I'm just not a power fishing guy um, for many reasons. But uh, I like fishing meat. You know, I've, I've fished meat here the last little bit. We're kind of flip-flopping back and forth with crankbaits. It really comes down to more where I'm at and then also where the fish are in the column. Um, you know, if if the fish get really deep with cranks at this time of year, it can just get much more difficult to get them there and maintain them there, a lot more hassle. And then when you're trying to check lines. So if I can fish meat effectively, that's what I like to do. Um, but I have both rods that I've been kind of flip-flopping back and forth. But I did set the spoons on my uh, on my deck there next to my boat, and those will be going in the boat very, very soon, probably this weekend. All right, here's one uh, from Randy. And Randy, is a uh, he's on the show just about every week watching. And this is a good question for you because you get a chance to talk about the X2 here. He says, uh, you said you do not run downriggers. wants to know how you run your probe on your fish hawk. Well, that's, that's actually how I got to come with Fishhawk because we helped design that X2 because there, certain, there was a certain individual at Fishhawk that saw me modifying a certain deal and said, what are you doing? So I basically have a short rod that you, it's available from Fishhawk, and I put an old line counter reel on there with some braided line, and it just goes in a rod holder right at my console. And if you go on my Facebook or any of those things, you can see it because I never take that X2 off. Uh, in open water and I've got it right next to my console and I'll set it in and out of there um, as needed. You can even let, leave it in there the way I have it as you're running to and fro. Um, I do put it away um, when I'm traveling down the road with the truck, but it's super, super, super portable. Uh, it's basically like the old the straw deal, kind of the Chinese straw trick, if you will. Um, and then I'm using just a big weight. Um, you can use it. I think fish off that offers, I believe it's a 16 ounce weight. Um, I've got another one that I'll use when I'm in deeper water that I believe is 32 ounces. Uh, it's like basically a big torpedo. Um, realistically, the 16 ounces is, is, is enough for most stuff. But I really, really, really like that. It's it's just easy to deploy and super simple because if it's if it's not, um, I just don't use it as much. Let's just be real. Yeah, Randy, check it out. It's the X2, and you can see a lot of stuff on Ross's channel. And uh, if you see these guys who are fishing uh, similar ways to the way Ross does, on these trailerable boats, and uh, they're out there on Lake Erie. It's a it's a very very uh, cool way to use the fish hawk and get that fish hawk data without the downrigger and uh, 
once you see it, you'll really see the magic in it. Like Ross said, he, he'd actually kind of, you kind of homemade one <laughs> out of an X4 and that kind of was the birth of the X2. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. It honestly, it's, there's no show here. I mean, it's the real deal to, to you know, you tell people you break it down and they're like, I don't know if I need that. Or, and, and I simply say, how many times does an average troller look down and see what a speed over ground is? I mean, a thousand times a day, even subconsciously looking at that. I mean, at least anybody that's pretty good at it will. But realistically, if I said, hey, you can get an item and buy it and look at it just like your watch right in front of you, what your real speed is of your lure, it's a game changer because this, the simple thing is, is how many times have you gone left to right or trolling west to east and you caught 10 fish, 15 fish, and you turn back around to come through when it's flat calm and you catch one or two or none. And the reality is, is you're not doing the same speed and you're generally off way, way more than you could ever imagine because of set and drift with the currents. And if I said, hey, you can get something, buy it and put it in your boat and tell you exactly what that number is and you don't, uh, any way the fish is the Great Lakes or really anywhere with current is, is they're crazy. Yeah, the first the first time I got to see this in action, Ross, uh, I started working for the company. We were doing some some trolling out on Lake Erie, and uh, we were out. We were pulling pulling worms, one point three miles an hour, and the action was so fast. We we were trying to film stuff, and we couldn't film because we kept getting interrupted by fish. And uh, the, the guy we were out there with says, uh, "I'll fix that," and and he he popped it up. So we were doing. We went from one point three, we were catching all the fish up to one point six. So we could kind of basically make those worms not do what they needed to do so we could film stuff. So just that that 0.3 miles per hour on the hawk, it went from we were catching fish and we, we couldn't even film to now we could do our stuff. And I don't think a lot of people realize, at least people that haven't seen this in action, realize just how, how big a part of, of the toolbox that this can be. Speed kills, either good or bad. <laughs> All right. Uh, this one's from Eric Modney, and Eric uh, has been on the podcast before. He's a Toronto angler. He says, what colors do you prefer for peak summer deep walleyes? What temperature zone do you target with the fish hawk? He's not a walleye guy, but he's looking to diversify. Gotcha. If you watch anything that I do, you know that I'm going to tell you, forget the color thing, because there's just so, so many more things. I know it's the, definitely the most fun thing to talk about, um, but I'm not going to say it doesn't matter, but there's so many other things that to worry about before that. Don't go crazy. And even where you're at from the western to the central to the eastern basin that you tend to see, um, you know, little color preferences for whatever reason. I think a lot like Lake Michigan, you know, like Silver Streak has Ludington watermelon and then you've got Manistee watermelon, all these different colors and things as you go throughout. The one trend that has been on, on Lake Erie, though, is chrome colors. Um, doesn't always, you know, hold true, but chrome stuff has been better on crankbaits than painted or the see-through, like bare naked stuff. Um, so that would be one thing I'd probably start gearing some if you don't have some chromes to do that, because there was probably a five or six-year period where you just there wasn't a lot of chrome colors on a lot of the popular baits, or they weren't selling anyhow. Um, as far as depth-wise, I don't really look at a at a temperature at all because realistically, it's all about the bait fish. So. If you find the bait, you're going to find the walleyes. We don't we don't go up and down as much as like a Lake Michigan or Lake Huron. You know, we don't have a blow where all of a sudden our water temperature is going to change 10, 15, 20 degrees with any frequency at all. So, um, you know, if you get really far east, you may see a temperature break on your graph. But even then, I've caught them above and below that. So look for the bait in the summer and you will find the fish, I promise. All right. We've got one here from Rick Bauer. And Rick's is... Uh... 
If you're marking fish in 40 feet of water, 10 feet off the bottom, what depth do you put your fish hawk? And are you changing that at all during the day? I like to get the, you know, the fish hawk thing within reason close to where I'm catching them, um, which is another reason I like having that X2 at my console. So it's farther away from my lures if I was to dead stick something or so nothing would get tangled up or netting or anything like that. Um, but the one thing that I would encourage you guys, I just ran an educational trip a few days ago with electronics, and that was the whole focus was electronics. And I blew the guy's mind by, you know, letting a fish go, and he watched it go down on the graph. And we've got a lot of stuff on my YouTube page with this, and even some of the like, pictures I put up on Instagram, where you have to understand that um, where you see, like, 30 feet on your graph doesn't mean that fish is at 30 feet. And we've got a really good thing, actually, high-tech fishing, old Bruce Sampson, give him a little plug. Um, he did a deal with a tennis ball and he tethered it 18 inches above in his pool. And based on where that transducer is, his wife kicked through the, in the little uh, raft across and showed, you know, the difference of when you mark that below you and then out to the side, because in 40 feet, you know, your transducer may have a 15, 16, 17, 18 foot, you know, beam that we're covering. And so depending on where you're marking those in there, you're not actually where you think you are. So I always like to spread my lines out. I do it much more than most people. And um, I just let the fish tell me where it's at. Narrow it down there from there. So we've talked fish hawk quite a bit tonight. It's, you know, it's fish hawk live. That's what we do. But uh, tell us a little bit about some of the other electronics that you're running on your boat and those tools that you're using to catch fish, Ross. Yeah, I mean, the, and I guess kind of expand upon that last question is, you know, guys, I rarely, I'm sure people don't want to hear me say this or some of the people I work with, but I don't look at my electronics that much when I'm fishing open water, assuming I'm still catching fish. Because I really, the one thing that I think I, I can, with fishing, it's tough to have hard rules, right? There's a lot of guys that get on these things and they tell you, this is how it is. And most of the time we just don't know. We've got some gray areas in there or a lot. And I like to mark them at speed. So I run a Hummingbird a Helix unit and I've got that 12 inch screen that is full sonar when I'm running. And I really think that's important because I can see that column and see much better. And I'm marking fish at speed. And it's amazing, amazing, Chris, how many days just this year alone, let alone through my career, that I'm marking the tar out of fish when I'm driving 25, 30 miles an hour. And then when I stop and slow down, I don't mark a single thing. And I go through them and I catch them like a bandit. And, you know, those fish spook. Um, the cone is not as big as you think, especially, you know, again, when you're the cones like this. Right. So if these fish are even halfway down, you, you're just not having that much range. And those fish, they spook out. So I don't know how many days just this year that I have caught fish like fire and I'm not marking anything yet. I go put the boat back on plane to run back, make another pass and I'm marking them again. So that's one of the reasons I don't really watch that too much. Um, I do kind of formulate a rough deal, um, you know, when I'm running on plane because I feel like those numbers are a little truer, but I still spread my stuff out. And I know people think that I'm dodging the question, but I'm not. If you fished with me, you know that I, I spread my stuff out and I make adjustments uh, fairly quickly from there, but I, I still leave them spread out even throughout the day. If I've got enough guys to run a few lines, you know, one being a little high, one being a little low, because uh, the worst thing you can do is leave fish that maybe slide up or down and you quit catching and you think the fish are gone, especially if you're not marking them like we just talked about. But what happened is those fish just slid up or down because of the conditions changing and you missed it because you got everything locked in in that same zone. Big mistake. All right, Eric Motti, just looking for a little clarification on your last answer. He says, so you're just using the X2 primarily for speed of the lure then? For the most part, yeah. I mean, for what I do, the temperature thing isn't a huge deal. I mean, do I drop it down there even if I'm not using it for that? Like another advantage, I, I, one of my buddies the other day was like, I never thought about that. It was kind of the elephant in the room. You know, even jig fishing, when you do get some of that cold water in the springtime that blows in or 
you know, there's different places that we're fishing and sometimes a degree or two um, cooler or warmer in the spring or the fall makes a big, big difference. Again, primarily because of bait fish. So if you're fishing, like I said, let's say a reef complex 10 miles this way and it's one or two degrees warmer or cooler, that can make a big difference if it's as effective or not. So I'll drop that X2 down just for the temperature. Um, but generally when I'm trolling, the temperature is not a big consideration for me. That lure speed, like you mentioned with the 1.3 to 1.6, that is the absolute game changer. All right, here's one from Nanette Hanley over on Facebook. She'd like to know, uh, do the currents become more of a factor in the deeper depths? Um, I, you know, that that's a tough one to answer because if you're on like a shallow rock pile and those currents are ripping through there, it's uh, it's no different than if you were in a, in a swimming pool and you had a strong undertow, you know, that that's going to rip just as hard and be as big of a deal. Um, but I think that the currents probably play a bigger play for people because they tend to be more pocketed. I think in the shallower water, they tend to go more one direction. Um, in the open water, you know, it's just that I drive off of that X2 because it's, it's not like you go, okay, I got it figured out. I'm going to drive in a straight angle. You can be going all of a sudden you're stalling and now you've got to curve and go here. Because if you look at some of those, uh, those government uh, websites that have the, the current charts on them, you'll see that there's a lot of swirls out there in big areas where those currents are going. And it's not necessarily just a west to east thing, especially as the, the wind direction changes. So they matter in everything. I, I guess you could maybe say in deep water that's a bigger deal. All right. Uh, Zach, question here. Wants to know if you're using lead core to run your crankbaits. I mean, I have probably 30 or 40 reels, you know, rigged up with segmented or full cores of lead, but they're kind of lonely. There's a little bit of dust on them. Uh, we don't have to use that. There's so many other ways to do it. Um, and it's just, it it's more time consuming and it's, it's more of a tangle situation. So I like crankbaits that I can get down to depth, you know, a little easier with, uh, you know, sometimes I'm snap weighting. Um, there's, there's, you know, braids, some other options that you can do, but um, it's tough to run as many lines, especially since I pick up and I may run back through. Um, it's just not as efficient and we don't have to do it. All right, Ross, uh, here's one from uh, Gordon McChesney and uh, this will be an interesting answer. Wants to know what is your go-to speed for Central Basin walleye? There's, there's no answer for that, you know, Gordon, I'd love to help you out, but it, that, that's like saying what one color crankbait do I use? I'm not trying to give you a dig, but, um, you know, that changes daily. Um, you know, you let the fish tell you what's going on uh, and, it, and it changes a lot and a lot of it because of that current situation. But, you know, the big thing you do is, you know, do some slow S's. Um, you'd be amazed at how many times you catch them. Just about maybe three, four days ago, I was doing a turn to avoid a knucklehead who literally decided to stop in front of me and I don't know what he was doing. And I mean, the fast side, I, my boards were screaming because I did such a, just a violent turn and I had to go hard. And then on my inside, my lines were literally sinking to the bottom and I, and I dropped one there too. So sometimes you're just on the fish that want to bite. But the point was, is those, those speeds were totally, totally different. Um, but that on a day that maybe the bite isn't as good, you know, something like a, a slow S or just changing it up and down is going to tell you pretty quick. Um, I hit the rabbit button on my Minn Kota, on my bow mount all the time. I got one fish doing that today that uh, kind of gave me a little bit of a trick to, to speed up a few tents. And when I did that, we got quite a few more bites. So, um, I mean, the, the range is huge. As you know, it's 0.8 to, you know, pushing three miles an hour. Let's talk about that for a second, Ross. Uh, you hit the button on your Minn Kota. Is that typically kind of your, the way you roll is with your kicker or with your, your bow mount or with your kicker? 
You know, I, I use the kicker for thrust. I never use it for, for steering unless I'm trying to do a hard turn or we've got, like I said, some knucklehead stopped in front of us or we're, we're, we're trying to do a big spin. 90% of my stuff, if not more than that, is with my Minn Kota. And I almost, like I said, I'll lock my kicker into place and even use that for steering unless it's a you know, kind of a violent turn situation. Um, and I'm really, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not using my kicker even nearly as much as I used to in those circumstances uh, because of technology again. You know, it, it's it's so much easier to make those micro adjustments with a trolling motor and having, you know, where your bow is at, um, you know, to, to kind of kick that boat around. And my Ranger tracks really good. So that really, really, really helps. You know, it's a, it's a heavy boat and it's kind of lower profile. If you have a higher boat, maybe that doesn't work as well for you or something with a big windshield or, you know, that's three feet off the water. Uh, some of the aluminum boats are a little more difficult to do this, but I'm running Dakota lithium batteries and it is insane. Uh, I was actually going into the current today and I was on a seven and a half on the Minn Kota remote. Anybody that has one knows what that is. And Anybody that has one would also know that you wouldn't want to do that really long because you're not going to get through a traditional day um, trolling like that, let alone, you probably wouldn't even get through three or four hours even with good batteries. Uh, but these Dakota Lithium 100 amps that I'm running, I can go probably about two, two and a half days. So it really changes um, my boat control for, uh, for the better. You talked about going into the current. Uh, here's a question from Diane on Facebook. Let's know if it's best to fish with or against that current or does it vary? My guess is you're going to say the third thing. It, it can vary. I mean, most of the time you want to be going with the current. Um, you know, I, I'll check things all the time because, again, if I'm all by myself and I'm catching fish and, you know, kind of like the thing, the question about the lead core, I, I, I generally fish a lot smaller patches and I'm going to pick up and I'm going to come, you know, motor back around and, and come through with the. Uh, what trolling through, but use the big, big motor to drive me around. And if I can avoid that, that's amazing. Most of the time I can't. So I'll try to check that and maybe I'll start to do a turn or I'll go turn and do a short distance and see, Hey, can I catch them going into the current? Um, you know, I would say maybe one out of 10 days that is equal or better. Um, most of the time you're going to be want to be going with the current or quartering off of it. All right. Uh, here's here's a good one here. Uh, what pound test do you run off with your inline planer boards with stick baits? Well, I'm more than pound test. Uh, I'm using 0.015 diameter. Actually, it's a hair less. It's like 0.014 or something, something. And the reason is because of, you know, a lot of the crankbaits and a lot of my other buddies, we're all using the same stuff. So you have to be really careful about saying pound test because as a good example, Berkeley line, if you use that, uh, 10 pound XT, 12 pound uh, big game, 14 pound XL, or basically in between 16 and 20 pound Sunline, which is what I use, those are all basically the same diameter. So again, you go into your sporting goods store, you look at Fish USA, and they got 5,000 lines on that page, and you go, hey, Ross said to get 16 pound test. It really, really varies from company to company. So look for something that's got that approximately 0 0.014, 0 0.014, pushing 0.015 diameter. And that way you're going to be closer to a lot of the dive charts that are available and a lot of the guys that fish all the time like myself. All righty. Gordon McChesney is back, and I think I uh, need a little bit more info here, Gordon. But, Ross, maybe you can just give him a, a spot to kind of start with. He says he just installed a new fish hawk. First run, what uh, what should he, what he, should he aim for for lure speed tomorrow? First run tomorrow, guys, tell me what to aim for for a two-and-a-half – I'm a little confused. Tell me to aim for a two and a half. I think he's. I think he's asking kind of where he should start. 
Well, um, I mean, if you're going to be in that two to two plus range, you're probably looking at spoons or crankbaits. Is that kind of what we're thinking? I but, think that's, I think that's, yeah, that's the thing. I think we got to have a little bit more information as far as what yeah. you're starting. Let's just say he's going to go out and run spoons. Ross, where would you start, have him start? Man, you're, Gordon's got me confused a little bit. I'm not going to lie to you, but um, <laughs> if you're using spoons or you're fishing faster like that, because that's what your boat does, maybe Gordon's boat, he can't get her down or something like that. Um, even if you're using night crawl harnesses, probably just look at something with the willow blades or something that, you know, excels at, at those at those parameters. But the big thing is, you know, go out there, spread your lines out. Again, it really, really matters. Marking at speed, you know, if your boat's set up for that, that's the biggest thing. Please do that, people. It makes your life a lot easier. Um, to spread those things out and then just narrow it down from there. I like to make my two inside lines on both sides of the boat, really kind of experimentals and I'll move stuff up and down nonstop. And it's a lot of days that that bails me out where I figure out, you know, kind of what the fish are doing. Ross, how about, how about reels? We've been talking a lot of electronic stuff like that. How about rod and reel setup? What are your favorites there for what you do? I've been using Shimano uh, Takotas for, I'm going to say roughly 20 years, whenever they came out, probably. I've realized real fast, like, you know, they're just really, really nice. Um, and I've recently got the new Takotas, which are really nice. They're really super smooth. They're a little more lower profile, a little easier to handle, a little easier in the rod locker. Um, but I've kept my old ones, and I'm using those for, like, my spinner fishing and stuff like that because the ratio, or at least the line retrieval, of how much line you take in is less. So... Um, I like that, and I'm using the the newer style ones that take in a little more line per crank um, for cranking because it's generally when you're spinner fishing slower is better. Uh, when you reel fast, it ends poorly. Uh, so I've um, been using those things forever. Um, as far as rods, you know, I kind of bounce around on stuff like that. Um, I can't really say the exact thing because I've been working with Shimano. We've got a really cool rod that I've been working with those guys for over a year designing that is going to be available very very soon. Um, which I'd probably be mad I even said that, but the Compre eight foot three uh, Shimano rod is amazing for for board fishing and for crankbaits. I mean, I just I love it. The handle, everything is set up for longevity. Um, you know, that's the problem with a lot of trolling rods. You look at them and they just they fall apart. Um, the components on them are not great, and that's definitely not the case with the Shimano Compre. That eight foot three telescoping, you know, it's easier in the in the garage, it's easier in the rod locker, in the boat. Um, telescopes down real easy and I really, really, really like that rod. And for you spinner guys, just hold tight. We got something coming. All right, Ross, really appreciate you coming on tonight. Is there something I didn't ask you about tonight that you'd like to talk about? My favorite ice cream. All right, let's hear it. I don't have one. It's like crankbait colors. It was a loaded question. <laughs> I am right now, I am eating, though, a uh, Toffs, which is a, a dairy here that has insane ice cream. Chris, when we get together to do some fishing, I'm going to take you to Toffs. They have a, it has actually cheesecake, real cheesecake pieces in it. And it's like yeah. cookies and cream. I just got done with a bowl before we got going here as a little energy go. Yeah. And it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I can't wait, wait for some toffs. It's, it's amazing. Amazing. All right, Ross, uh, tell us a little bit about how to get in touch with you and uh, go ahead and plug that that YouTube channel as well so people can find you there. You've got a lot of awesome information. Really, uh, your YouTube channel answers a ton of the questions that were asked tonight. I think uh, if you guys went there, they could get a really good education to get started here. Yeah, I mean, I, I am a guide. I've been doing that forever, and I've got guys that work, you know, for me that uh, so we can accommodate larger parties if you, if you want to do something or run an educational trip, learn about your electronics, whatever it may be. But 
Uh, I also hired on my producer for my TV shows with me for a long time. And now he works with Big Water Fishing and he's doing a lot of our stuff. So we've kind of upped the bar as you've seen. Um, we've got everything from cooking segments on there, how to cook your catch. And we're doing tons of educational stuff, of course. We've got podcasts with guys like Gary Roach. And we've got a few coming out here with people that, let's just say, super mega famous legends that don't do podcasts. And I'm very, very excited about um, but big water fishing, go to bigwaterfishing.com, which is my website that has all the links to all of these things, the past podcasts and videos and all that YouTube, it's big water fishing as well. Instagram, Facebook, pretty much. If you type in big water fishing, um, you're going to find us. Yeah. Ross has got an awesome Instagram too. If you're there, uh, he's always putting stuff up. And, uh, uh, if you don't know Ross, you'll find out that Ross likes to joke around a lot too. He's a, he's a, he's a good follow, a lot of fun to see him. And, uh, we really appreciate you coming on tonight, Ross. It was a lot of fun to have you here. And I hope a lot of people learn some stuff. Always enjoy it. Appreciate the call. All right. For Ross Robertson, I'm Chris Larson. Have a great night and we will see you next week. Uh, we've got a pretty cool, uh, guest lined up for next week. It should be fun. We will talk to you later. Thanks for listening to the Great Lakes Fishing Podcast presented by Fishhawk Electronics. For more information on fishing the Great Lakes, visit our blog at fishhawkelectronics.com.